Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 101, Psalm 101, and you'll need to follow along in the Bible. And so the guys have some. If you need a Bible, they're going to make their way toward the back, and if you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those to you, and it's marked for you at Psalm 101. So you don't need to fumble around. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. This microphone is working. When I first came up and started the prayer, it was not working. That creates a dilemma for me as I'm praying. Should I pray louder? If I pray louder and then they turn it on, that risks waking some of you up. and We wouldn't want that. But they turned this one on, so quick action. And then I went back to see <clears throat> what had happened. Now, a few years ago, uh, four years, the guys used to put the wireless on me and... Uh, put this part on, the headset, and all of that. A few years ago, they said, you know, you're old enough to dress yourself. And so I've been doing it the last few years. So when I walked back, I wanted to go to the experts to see what magic they would have to do. They looked at the remote, and they, they turned it on for me. And so it's, I just wanted you to know it's my fault and not theirs. We are going to be having communion, as you see up at the front here, at the end of our time together. So we're going to hasten on with our message. We may have to give short shrift to some of the later points in the outline that you received on the way in. But one of the struggles of the Christian life is to see how it is that Sunday fits in with Monday through Saturday. That is, how does all of what I individually did this past week fit in with what we do every Lord's Day? each Sunday. Perhaps we think there is no connection. Or if there is, it's that what I do during the week just earns a living so that I have the wherewithal to contribute financially to the church's mission. Now that's good and important, but is that all there is to my workaday week? Or if I find a job to do in the church, a ministry to be part of, and help operate, whether on Sunday or some other time during the week, Am I then fulfilling my purpose for the Lord? What about a stay-at-home mom? Even though she sacrifices and no doubt struggles at times with her little ones at home, is it not until she serves little ones in the nursery during a church service that it really counts? I think most of us intuitively and rightly object to the idea that what I spend most of my week doing doesn't count for much unless it's formally tied in some way to the work of the church. But many of us also know that the local church has indeed been authorized to carry out God's mission in His world so that being involved in what she's doing, what we're doing here, is immensely important. So is one more important than the other? If they're both important, then how are they related? Now that's a question that I posed at the end of our second hour class last week. So take this as a tease for you to stay for second hour today as we pursue that further, but it also relates to the psalm that we're covering today, Psalm 101. We're going to see that our everyday callings, not just our church ministries, matter to God, and therefore they should matter to us as well. Let's ask the Lord to help us then as we do. Father, we thank you that we are here with your people together in your presence in a special way as we gather on the Lord's day. 
Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for giving us your word, for preserving it for us these over 2,000 years now for the, the New Testament. And thank you for giving us the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. We have your complete word, your revelation to us. So Lord, help us to make good use of it. Help us to be people who read it, study it, and most of all, obey it. Help us to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you take a look at that outline that you received when you came in, you'll see from the title and from the major points that this psalm has to do with the work of a king, specifically the work of King David of Israel as that superscription that's just above verse 1 identifies this as a psalm of David. And at the very beginning, he speaks of what he's going to do. In verse 1, he's going to sing praise to the Lord. In verse 2, he's going to lead an exemplary life. And the entire psalm then is about what the king is going to embrace and what he's going to avoid. But why is he telling that to the Lord? What prompted him to pledge to God regarding the kind of king he aspires to be? Well, the fact that he's saying this would suggest that this is a psalm that he wrote near the beginning of his reign as king. And in verse 2, there is something that I think points to precisely what it was that motivated David to to write this. In the middle of verse 2, King David asked the Lord, when will you come to me? Now, that's not the way people normally talked in those days about their proximity to God's presence. They would speak of going to him in Jerusalem, the holy city, but not God coming to the people. But that language of the presence of God coming to David was used elsewhere in an infamous incident in his early career as king. I mentioned in last week's message from Psalm 95 that David successfully recovered the Ark of the Covenant, that holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle and then later temple that was used for worship and it was placed in a special section called the Holy of Holies. It had been captured by the Philistines, Philistines whom David defeated and he recaptured the Ark and then he brought it back to Jerusalem where it belonged. On that occasion, as we saw, the Bible records celebratory worship that took place. But before the ark's arrival in Jerusalem, during its journey from the land of the Philistines back to Israel, David and his entourage encountered trouble. To emphasize how holy the ark was, the Lord had ordered that it be transported in a particular way with poles that extended through loops at the bottom so that the attendants would not make direct contact with the, with the ark. Even the priests were not allowed to touch it. To help transport it, they made a special cart on which it was placed using the the poles. But they hit a rough spot, and the oxen pulling the cart stumbled. And so to steady it and keep the ark from falling to the ground, a man named Uzzah reached out and he touched it. And here's what the Bible then says. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now just as an aside, a lesson to draw from that incident is that God does not want any of us making up our own rules. God does not need us to help him out. 
do what he says, and when he tells us in Scripture how he wants it done, then do it that way. Now, prior to that, 2 Samuel 6 says the group had been singing and celebrating, but now it's undoubtedly stopped, and here's what David says after this incident with Uzzah. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? It's language very similar to what David asks in our psalm. In verse 2, when will you come to me? For the Israelites, the presence of the ark was the presence of God. In some ways, this horrific but instructive incident was a personal failure for the king himself. The progress of moving the ark to Jerusalem was delayed, we're told in 2 Samuel 6, for months. And the king wonders, in the words of one commentator, if God took this so seriously that he punished Uzzah with death, How could David ever hope to have a life and rule so blameless that God, in the presence of the ark, could dwell with him? And that's why he begins to detail what I say then in the outline. What a good king pursues. Now you might be thinking, look, uh, it's all fine, and it points somewhat interesting to know what David experienced, but I'm not a king. And I don't have concerns remotely like those that he did. So why should I care about this? Well, if you'll indulge me for just a bit, I'd like to suggest to you that you do, believe it or not, play a kingly role as someone who is part of Christ's church. The Bible applies to the church, God's people, A description originally used in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, to describe Jews in the nation of Israel. Here's what 1 Peter 2 says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We have individual roles then to play as part of God's church, so representatives of the king and kingdom that the church anticipates. I'm indebted to pastor and author Jonathan Lehman for the excellent work that he's done in thinking this through for Christians individually and for the church corporately. Jonathan says in one of his books, I recall sitting in a restaurant booth with a close friend who is a Christian and a lawyer. Those two are not contradictory, by the way. You can be. <laughs> Sorry to the lawyers we have in the. Uh... But he's sitting with this Christian and a lawyer, and the lawyer says to him, Do you think your work is more important than mine? And he says, He asked that because Jonathan's involved in full time Christian ministry. He only asked because he wanted to answer it himself. No way, my friend said. His work was as sacred as mine, and Jonathan agrees for the most part. After having shown in this book, Jonathan does, at creation that God made humanity to represent and rule for God, he says this, every Christian is a priest and king. My lawyer friend's kingly occupation is lawyering. But he can do his kingly work as a nonverbal witness to God and as an occasionally verbal evangelist because he occupies the priestly office of church member. 
by virtue of being a baptized, Lord's Supper receiving member of a church, his whole week speaks for Jesus, including his lawyering work. Our church membership is like those ichthus, that's Greek uh, acronym for fish, so the fish symbol. Those ichthus bumper stickers stuck onto cars indicating that someone represents Jesus. Which Jonathan says, in light of my driving, is why I personally would never put such a bumper sticker on my car. Still, the priestly calling or vocation every Christian possesses or should as a church member obligates and shapes our kingly work of representing Jesus in all of life. To join a church is to be formally recognized by other Christians as a fellow citizen an ambassador of a heavenly kingdom. Once a new disciple has been recognized by a church, the disciple submits him or herself to job training. We must learn how to be citizens and ambassadors for this kingdom. To that end, a church will teach its members to observe everything Jesus commanded. To apply this to myself, Jonathan says, personally, Jesus intends for me to observe everything he's commanded as a church member and church pastor, yes, but also as a father to my daughters, a husband to my wife, a citizen, a neighbor, a friend, a car driver, a homeowner, a grocery shopper, a restaurant patron, a utilities customer, and on and on. Let's pick one of those examples, he says, restaurant patron. The whole church doesn't go with me into the restaurant. The whole church's job is not to tip my server. The whole church's work is to identify me with Jesus through baptism and the Lord's Supper. It named me as a Jesus ambassador. Yet now, there I sit in the restaurant booth trying to decide how much to tip my server. And my individual decision about a tip will represent Jesus well or poorly. So it's so it is in every other domain of life because my church has formally declared me to be a Jesus ambassador. So we need to talk about two different jobs. He says the embassy job of the whole church and the ambassadorial job of every member. We need to, in my words, live like kings, which is the title of today's message at the top of the outline. And so we, then, must pursue what a good king does, which is first the practice of, I say in the outline, of love. In verse 1, I will sing of your love. Now one quibble, but, important, but an important one, is that the word your that we have in the NIV there in English, is not in the original Hebrew from which this was translated. So some versions just say correctly, I will sing of love and justice. Now the NIV translators assumed it's talking about God's love and justice, and of course we only have any of those because he does first. But here in this context, David is pledging what kind of king he desires to be, and so it's entirely appropriate that we just go with what was originally written. I will sing of love and then justice because that's one quality that will be characteristic of my rule, he sang to the Lord. 
In his book, Thirsting for Authenticity, Dr. Douglas McLaughlin writes of the struggle to love as we ought. He says, according to Scripture, love of self is our first and most basic sin, the font from which all other evil flows. This was precisely the offense of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They failed to love God supremely with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they chose to love self above all else, including even their Creator. Love of God has now been displaced by love of self. Christ's great commandment has been turned upside down and inside out in the hearts of all self-lovers. The motto becomes, glory to me in the highest, when the self becomes the epicenter of life. When this happens, wherever it happens, including inside the body of Christ, divine and human relationships disintegrate and obedience to God and service to others become impossible. This is so because authentic biblical love, love as defined by God, demands a radical change from self to unself. And that's the unthinkable thing in our narcissistic culture. When such a disposition prevails, our world suffers a crisis of compassion, and we begin to practice the revelatory words of Pierce Pettis, when I grow up, I'll look out for me. It's a small lifeboat, and baby, it's a great big sea. And your tears are nothing. Don't put that guilt on me. This is, he says, a formula for misery, both personally, culturally, and missionally. Wherever this kind of misdirected love is exercised, meaningful life and ministry unravel at the seams. So we are called to represent the king well as his ambassadors in our kingly roles, wherever he has assigned those, when we display love as he did. And so how did he display love? Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then you remember, many of you, what it says after that. His mindset was, though he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he was willing to make himself of no reputation and come as a servant and be obedient all the way to the point of death for us. And so remember that love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So contrary to our culture, love is not indulgence. That is, love is not simply giving or giving in to what someone wants. Giving someone money may be compassionate, and that's why we have a benevolence fund here, and why as individual Christians we should help others as we have opportunity. But that money may finance something harmful. And if you know that's the case, that it's going to finance harmful habits, that it's going to deepen one's commitment to irresponsibility, or it's going to harmfully finance a substance addiction, 
In that case, what we call compassion is actually bad stewardship of God's resources. And it's a failure to love well. Or if someone requires you to affirm them in a sinful lifestyle in order to display what they think is love, then you will have to lovingly decline. Whether that be at work, whether that be at school, whether that be in your family. Love cannot sin, hear this, in order to please others because our first love is to God. And notice how Scripture pairs both love and truth. Second John, the Apostle John, wrote these three short letters at the end of your New Testament. And the second of those, Second John, only has, it has no chapter. It just has 13 verses. And here are the first three. The elder, referring to himself. To the lady chosen by God and to her children. Now that could be a specific lady, Christian lady, and her family that he's addressing. I think more likely it's figurative for the church, the bride of Christ, to whom he is writing, a particular local church, and to the members of that church. But either way, notice he says, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love, notice, in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. So please remember, dear friends, that love always operates in the sphere of truth. And it never violates that. A good king. We represent the king as his kingly ambassadors pursues the practice of love and of, I say in the outline, justice. Verse 1 says, I will sing of your love and justice. And like truth, justice tempers what could otherwise be a misuse of love, making love permissive. Martin Luther, the 16th century theologian who sparked the Reformation, he wrote 80 pages on this psalm. Of the relationship between mercy, he uses the word mercy rather than love, and justice, he said this, what the psalm calls mercy and justice is said not of the mercy and justice of God, but of the mercy and justice which a prince practices toward his servants and his subjects. A prince and lord must use both of these. If there is only mercy and the prince lets everyone milk him and kick him in the teeth and does not punish or become angry, then not only the court but the land too will be filled with wicked rascals. All discipline and honor will come to an end. On the other hand, if there's only anger and punishment or too much of it, then tyranny will result and the pious will be breathless in their daily fear and anxiety. Wise application and balance of both love slash mercy and justice. What it does, friends, is it promotes human flourishing because it's good for all in all relationships, whether in the family, whether government, whether at work, 
and also in the church. And so a good king pursues the practice of love and of justice and of integrity. Verse 2, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Now, I use the word integrity in the outline because verse 2 speaks of life, but also of the heart. That is, what we do on the outside is to be motivated by what we are on the inside. We are genuine, authentic, real, not faking it in our actions when our heart is somewhere else. Integrity comes from the word integer, the whole of anything. A whole number, not a fraction, so whole character, not a piece of character. And so it speaks of the unimpaired state of one's mind and heart. Integrity has the same root word as does the word integrated. A leader of integrity has taken the principles that govern his life, he's internalized them and integrated them into every area of his life. And so that means friends, that the heart and the tongue are connected. They, they need to be integrated. And you need to understand that what we say comes from the connection to the heart. Jesus said as much when he said the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The heart is attached to the tongue. What we say and it's also attached to our hands, what we do. Jesus said in Luke 6, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. So as God's representatives, as his kingly representatives, as his ambassadorial representatives in his world. There's what we pursue, and then we're also told what a good king rejects. And I remind you that the negations in Scripture are always because of its standards. When I say the negations, the things that it says not to do. The things we don't do, the things we avoid, the things we reject are always due to what we are positively trying to achieve. There are many prohibitions in the Bible, but those are all for the purpose of helping us to achieve its positive commands. And so just take the Ten Commandments with the thou shalt nots, but all of that Jesus said, all of those things you are not to do are all because of what it is you're positively trying to accomplish. The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. The second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two positive commands hang all of the negations, the negative stuff. So in this psalm, if we're to represent the Lord as described in verses 1 and 2, it means we have to reject the things in verses 3 through 5. And verse 3 says, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. The King James Version says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I remember decades ago being in the studio apartment of a young 
Detroit Baptist Seminary student. He had a small television there. He was a single guy. He had a small television there. And on it, he had that verse. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes to remind him about being selective in what it is he was to watch. Now, in context, this has to do primarily with vile, worthless people. Because it goes on to say, I hate what faithless people do, verse 3, and I will have no part in it. Faithless people are people who break agreements with others. And with God, they turn their back on God in disobedience. Verse 4, the perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. It's a heart that's known for that because the person has turned away from what is right. And then verse 5, whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. The word slander in Scripture means to talk down. And then verse 5 says, whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. It's an arrogance that says I need no help and often belittles those who have the humility to acknowledge that they do. What verses 3 through 5 are telling us is something that we're told in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. And notice that it's in quotation marks because that's a quotation from a Greek poet, Menander, whose writings the Corinthians would know. But even though he was not a Christian, he wrote something true and Paul incorporated it. Now how do we apply this to us since we don't hang around with this group generally? Well, what about what we invite, the people that we invite into our lives, through media? And whether or not they fit some or all of these descriptions. TV, music, social media. And as I was going through verses 3 through 5, some of you may have been thinking about some of your associations. Whether at work, whether in your family, whether at church. And if that's the case, if you have people with whom you have a relationship, that fit into these categories, then bad company corrupts good character. Do not be so arrogant as to think it won't affect you. And further, if that person is a professing believer and they're doing any of these kinds of things, then you ought to speak truth into their lives lovingly. So what about our attitudes and words then, even with other Christians and in church? A sharp, sarcastic, complaining attitude and tongue are not good for anyone, and they can happen among people who faithfully serve. Years ago, I attended a seminar on church life and the operation of a church, and one of the pastors who was speaking told the story of this very phenomenon, of people serving faithfully but copying an attitude over time, <laughs> getting tired of it, getting tired of the people that they're serving. They start to be snippy, and they start to be sarcastic, and they start to be even slanderous. And he was speaking with one such woman in his church, and it was clear that she had developed this kind of, this kind of hostility even. And he said, listen, we need to give you a break. 
And immediately she protested, no, 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 I love what I'm doing. <laughs> he said, we don't love the way you're doing it. <laughs> and we may have overworked you here. We need to have you step back and take that break. Now, friends, if you have friends, even Christian friends, even Christian friends in the church who fit into these categories, you need to lovingly speak to them about that. And further, if you find yourself in that category, but you say, I've got to do this ministry or nobody will do it, hear me, hear me well. We would much rather you not do the ministry, rest and be refreshed in your spirit, then come back and do that or some other ministry. And if we can't find someone to do it, then it just won't get done and that will be okay. So I urge you to think about that. In representing the Lord, then, there are things we pursue, things we reject, and things we should expect. Verse 6, my eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. So in verses 1 and 2, David personally pledges to be this kind of person. He uses the word blameless twice in verse 2, and now he's saying it's going to be these kind of people who are going to be my entourage. And in verses 3 through 5, he's going to avoid those who are not. And in verse 6, these are the kind of people with whom he's going to surround himself. And so a king expects, I say in the outline, virtue. Because verse 6 is repeating what David has as his goal for his, his own life. And he says, these blameless individuals are going to be the kind that I'm going to bring around me. And so we require virtue and we disdain, I say in the outline, vice. Those vices that he rejects in verses 3 through 5 in his own life, he expects others to avoid as well. Notice verse 7. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. And so he's saying the people that are like those in verses 3 through 5 will not be in my government. That's what he means by his, his house. And verse 8. Every morning I will put to silence all of the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. If I have a life verse, sometimes people will do that. Perhaps you've ad adopted a life verse, your favorite verse, and you have it in the front cover, inside cover of your Bible. Uh, I've never really formally adopted one. Uh, if I had one, it would be Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It's all there, friends. Love mercy. Love to show mercy. Love to love as Christ does. But also act justly. I will sing of love and justice. Act justly so that love is defined properly as God does. And it represents the king accurately because here's what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus our king. In John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, and notice this, full 
of grace and truth. Jesus embodies both love, mercy, grace, and truth at the same time. And he calls us as his representatives to do that as well. Here's your take-home truth then. Christians use their influence to reflect God and to bless others. 